Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. How would you feel about speaking in a room full of strangers? Public speaking remains to be one of the most terrifying acts for people when asked what scares the hell out of them. For most, it's that underlying fear of making a fool of themselves. So just the very idea of having to do it sends them into cold sweats and hypertension. This may be you, or maybe you are someone that is okay with it, but feels that with a better system, you could be much better at it. The good news is that there is a process behind a great system, and with all processes, there exists strong habits to support. How much better would your influence be if you were able to master this skill? Today we have John Yale on the show, curator of 10x Melbourne and expert in public speaking and coaching. Enjoy. John, welcome to Ultra Habits. People don't know, this is our round two. We had some technical issues, so hopefully we're twice better in this conversation, man. Welcome to the show again. Hey, good to be back. Yeah, so look, I have been kind of aware of you and spoke to you off and on over the years on LinkedIn and and various channels. And one of the things that became clear within the kind of Ultra Habits community was people started to talk about, well, how do we develop habits around getting more comfortable speaking, whether it's presenting at work or public speaking. And I couldn't think of anyone better than you to actually have on the show to talk about this subject. And I think the reason why you're, it's, it's so it's so powerful having you on the show. Not only do you coach and, and help people get better at this, but you yourself, like you're not a super extroverted person. You don't come across as someone that's like, likes to have a rah-rah and, you know, like gets, you know, get on stage and just kind of hammer it out. So I think like you're super accessible in that, way. So I guess before we go into how people can get more comfortable in, in different forums of speaking, how did you actually fall into this? Yeah, it's a funny one for me. As you've already mentioned, I'm a shy introvert. So if you do any of those psychographic profiles, I'm not only introvert, I'm off the scale introvert. But I had this necessity when I re- uh, graduated from university, I did IT in the mid nineties. And the thing that was clear and present to me was, uh, the millennium bug Y2K. There was not, there was, uh, the date for moving that date, you know, time was not negotiable. And so the urgency just kind of crept up and up and up and up, but people weren't taking it seriously. And there was no CIOs or CTOs back then. And, you know, a, a CEO wouldn't give you a meeting time, you know, to a newly minted graduate out of uni. But I had one advantage. And all of that was he had to walk past my desk on the way to his office. Yeah. And so I got really good at these short sound bites uh, at a level he could understand with a degree of impact that made him pay attention. And that became really the impetus of my 
awareness that the ability to say the right thing at the right time to the right person in the right way was actually a skill set. And I developed this to the point where I was living in London, working with mission critical systems, traders, trading banks, uh, 5,000 of them to be exact. And I had to convince each of them to take their computer away for between half an hour and half a day. Now, the challenge I had there was that for every 15 minutes their computer was down, they were personally losing a million pounds sterling revenue. So it became a rather good, uh, I guess, baptism of fire in, in terms of negotiation and communication skills. Wind forward a little bit, and in 2009, when I joined TEDx Melbourne, one of the things I got access to was the TED data. And that TED data was rather interesting to me as an IT guy because there was data in there about when someone would pause, rewind, or abandon a video. And I used statistical modeling to help me develop my skills further and to give advice to other people when on the TED stage. And then that basically expanded out into industry where I did a little bit more industry uh, data and research to today where that's pretty much what I do full time uh, for any organization that's interested in working with me. Well, you're an excellent communicator, John. I mean, were you painfully yeah. shy? Yeah, no. Like, were you one of those people that, like, it was very difficult? I didn't even like speaking your small right. amongst my friends much, you know? And, and even today, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really known yeah. for speaking a whole lot. So, no, speaking introvert, extroversion is definitely not an attribute. If, if I had to pick the perfect holiday, it's a quiet place in the sun with almost no one there. That would be, like, my perfect holiday. I just... I don't really need to recharge sort of really quiet spaces. I think it makes it even more impactful though, because for you, what it proves to everyone and to all of us is that it's actually a skill, Absolutely. right? It is a skill. And I think that there's this view of natural oration in mouth walls that may be true. There are also different elements of communication. I mean, that point you made around your kind of elevated pitch almost to the CEO and having that kind of bite-sized, impactful, quick dialogue with your CEO. Like, how great is that in terms of if individuals could learn to implement that, particularly within their careers, right? Because most executives are time poor. And so, like, being able to articulate a message quickly with impact and then kind of stepping back, like, that's a yeah, skill, absolutely. Right? 100% convinced it's a learned skill. And a little bit like a muscle or mental muscle, you can develop this over time. It doesn't have to be something you do all at once and then forget. But it is a muscle in that it will degrade to a degree. So you still got to, if you want to be sharp, you've got to keep keep going. But once you learn the mm. skill, it's always there. <laughs> and let's talk about different forms of communication, right? So there's like oration, there's giving a speech, and there's things like TED Talk, which is a talk, and then there's presenting or pitching, let's say at a board level, or you're trying to pitch an idea, there's things like selling, there's kind of hand-to-hand -hand communication, kind of negotiating and trying to influence like you did with the stock traders. Like how do all these things vary in terms of skills required and, and what are the different contexts when you look at just communication yeah. in general? When we're talking about speaking, communication and influence, there are things you say and then there's things you need to be aware of. And the things you need to be aware of externally are things like who they are, what they think of you, what their knowledge, experience, and background, how they perceive you. And that's obvious, I guess. But then there are other environmental considerations 
Like, what are they expecting for you? The difference between a speech, a lecture, a lesson, and a narration are quite different. And so the way you prepare for that and the way so, you layer the information and the complexity and the detail you would go into would also vary. It's not unlike thinking about, you know, if I said to you, you're going to do a talk this afternoon for half an hour, the amount of time you'd prepare and the amount of pressure you'd give yourself would be different if the audience was the local kindergarten versus the chair of the board. So it's about being mindful about all the contextual situations you need to adapt for, sometimes in real time, in order to make sure that your message lands. And so there's a big argument in my world for being really prepared and being clear in your head, because if it's clear in your head, it can be clear in your audience's head. If it's not clear in your head, the audience hasn't got a chance. And so being clear in your head then means you spend less time thinking about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it, and you can spend more time working on how's the audience responding and how they're expecting to receive the message and shape your narrative accordingly. And so it's really about mm-hmm. being sensible about communication just as much as being precise or mm-hmm. you know uh, systemic about it, although that helps. Mm. You and I talked about the power of preparation and I think, you know, like I'm a, a big preparer. Like I, I, I'm okay in front of people and, and presenting and, and or, with oration, it, it's good and it's okay for me, but I do prepare. And a lot of people don't realize the level of preparation. I think you and I talked about when I was doing my MBA, I would do the final pitches to, um, you know, big consulting firms that would come in and they would be 10 to 15 minute pitches. And the night before everyone's having beers and drinks and I'm in the room till two in the morning, just prepping. And that allowed me to be spontaneous. However, you do at times see people that prepare and you see them on TED or TEDx and it comes across as robotic, right? So like it, it, there's a real, and a, how, how, how does one ensure that through preparation, it doesn't seem that they've memorized, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Versus kind of, because you, you, you want to prepare, but still be kind of assured and spontaneous, right? If if you're prepared, well, there's a saying in the speaking world, yeah, amateurs practice till they get it right. Mm-hmm. Professionals practice it till they can't get it wrong. And so what we mean by that is you practice it to the point where, okay, you can say it without even thinking about it, okay. but what else would you need to do to naturalize it, what I call a lived experience. If I said to you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? You would never go, hmm, how would I language and structure myself in such a way that John would understand what I put in my mouth? Because you lived that experience. And I would argue that we need to get our content to a point where it's a lived experience. It naturally comes out. So that if something comes in that we don't expect, it just becomes just a, 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 a minor distraction in the conversation. And that's where the improvisation can really mm. be natural. But if you practice it, practice it, practice it, and you're thinking, is my slide right? Why didn't they laugh at my joke? You know, why are they paying attention? You're in your head. And if you're in your head, you can't be with your audience. And that's where the disconnects happen. So what's happening is when you see someone who's robotic on stage, they're in their head. They haven't practiced it enough. So it's so natural that it just almost oozes out of them without even thinking about it. And so... There's a, I guess there's a window where you practice to a point and then you've got to go over that. And so my rule of thumb there is practice until you're thoroughly sick of it. Calculate how much time that took and add another 50%. And that would be where you'd sort of de, de you know, take the edges off or, or de-roboticize, if that's a word, 
that that uh, that robotic mm. nature. Yeah. In the professional world, in the acting world, they yeah. call that adding the warts. So they practice to the point where they memorize the lines. They know it so much, so well. But then they deliberately add faults in. They deliberately add quirks in. They deliberately add personality traits uh, in, uh, so that the yeah. performer then becomes the character, as opposed to the actor becoming the performer. And so that becomes just the, the subtle differences that makes those really great actors look like they are literally that character. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think, you know, when we prepare, and I guess that leads to my next question, like how much risk should a speaker take in regards to reading their audience and maybe implementing that kind of, you know, those kind of nuances yeah. on the spot? Right. Like in terms of how comfortable they are, but like, how would you answer that question? Like, say you're giving a speech and you kind of are reading the audience, which I think you would agree you, you should do, but how much courage should you have to kind of delineate okay. from what you've prepared? So preparation has, I mean, strong preparation, it's the foundation of all good work. Sure. And I don't care whether that's speaking, building a house, executing a project. So, you know, the better you're, you're prepared, the better you're going to execute. Simple. In terms of variables there, there's your knowledge and experience and background of the content, the quality of relationship you have with the person you're at, the nature of the situation you're in. Is this a regular meeting, a formal, formal meeting, an emergency meeting, a conference, just a friendly chat? Like those will determine your nerve, nervousness levels. And then um, matching their needs and expectations with your knowledge and experience. So depending on how many factors are critical, you will need to prepare more or less according to that. Now, having said that, um, especially in business, sometimes you don't get time to prepare. And sometimes you maybe get less than five minutes. And that's one of the reasons I created the models that I did. They allow you to create a narrative or a compelling conversation in five minutes or less by just knowing what things to prepare for. And what are some of those things within so, the model? They're, they're like, what, what, what is it in my world? So there's environment. Why are you here? What's what's about? What is the situation that causes this to come together? If it's a regular meeting or emergency meeting is a good example of that. But also time of day. It's easier to have a meeting at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday than 4.55 as they're running out the door on a Friday. Um, and then, you know, certain other contextual elements like, you know, is this the first time you're meeting them? It's full of, you know, et cetera. So that's environment. Yeah. All the things yeah. largely that you need to be mindful of before you even open your mouth. Next level down, if we want to sort of stack rank this, there's five things here, but the next level down I call organization. And that's where organizational rapport comes in. If I say Apple, Nike, or Tesla, there's a different visceral response than say Toyota, Dell, and Adidas. And if this is an internal conversation, then it's the reputation of the team. So I was in the IT team for a lot of the time. And I was acutely aware that when we were speaking to HR or any of the other parts of the organization, that we didn't have the best reputation for being clear thinking, easy to understand, on time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So organizational nature then determines pre-event uh, perception. Next level down is you, your yeah. ability to build trust, rapport, credibility, your rank, your role, your title, your degree of confidence as you already mentioned, those sorts of things. Being prepared personally is a really important factor. And in those three areas, color someone's perception of you before you even open your mouth. 
And so you've got to have those up paired. <laughs> the fourth thing is the message. And that's basically saying the right thing at the right time to the right person the right way. And that includes complexity. <laughs> that includes detail. That includes time, you know, in terms of length. Uh, all those then become critical factors. And then the fifth element is is you. Uh, sorry, is, is audience, which is, you know, who are they? <laughs> you know, are they paying attention? What are their priorities? What are their projects? How do they make decisions? You know, um, who influences them in making their decisions? There's all a whole bunch of other factors, and this is where probably 80% of my preparation time goes, to understand every fact and nuance of, of, for every stakeholder in the room so that you could address their needs before they even need to open their mouth. And that way they're with you the whole time as opposed to in their head going off on some tangent, but you didn't mention this, but you've forgotten that, but you assumed that. You don't want that sort of stuff going on in their head because if that's going on, then yeah. they're, they're not listening to you 100% and you need them to pay attention because if they're paying attention, you can connect. If you're not connecting, then obviously yeah. you failed as a communicator. Now you're coming into my world and the world of selling. And John, I don't know if you've ever thought about consulting to sales teams because, I mean, effectively what you're talking about is the strategic selling environment, understanding your environment and really doing your homework on the stakeholders, the nuances, the circuses, I call it before you even go in the room is critical. And, you know, oration yeah. is, you know, the speech piece. I think that may require some level of awareness of your audience, but the world we're now moving into in terms of what we're talking about requires a high level of yeah. cue and sensitivity and research into your environment. Um, and I don't think that many people realize that when you do that, it actually impacts your communication for the better like the the communication piece is the the last piece of all this preparation and all the work that you're doing to really understand the ecosystem yeah. and the yeah. environment and look right? you know equally for sales as any other conversations the more you can sort of be prepared in terms of what you want to say and how you want to say it the more time you can spend being with that person and humanly connecting yeah, and so sales is a is a certain type of engagement, in the same way that an oration is a certain type of yeah. engagement, in the same way that catching up with your mates is a certain type of engagement. It's just the stakes are different, and so yeah. you need to make sure that you're preparing appropriately yeah. for the level of you know of engagement that you need to have. Do you think that communication is valued in different cultures more or less? And the reason I ask this question is. Is an American, America's heavily indexed to worshiping good orators and sometimes good and into the detriment, I think, of that society. If someone could speak well, people will follow. Within Australia, we don't seem to be that concerned with great communication. In fact, I remember, um, again, when I was uh, doing my MBA and I was, I had presented something to um, Ernst and Young in one of the projects. One of the girls in the cohort came up to me and she said, you're a great speaker, but she goes like, it's a bit of a performance, isn't it? And and it it was like, I understood what she was saying because in Australia, yeah. we should laugh at ourselves. So I kind of laughed. And, but in, in some ways, there was a bit of perception coming from her that I think speaks a lot about the yeah. society here in Australia that like it was almost too much. And 
And and so could being too good of a communicator be detrimental? Yeah. Like how does being a communicator vary from culture to culture, particularly let's say the US and, and, uh, and places like Australia? So what she's referring to is the tone of your delivery. And I imagine, and this is very common in the US, it's high energy. It's very definitive. It's very unambiguous. It's like, this is how it is. Um, and so the expectation of the US audience is met by that type of style. Then there's the quieter, more subdued side, um, which is a bit more colonial, a bit more Australian. Um, and the professional speakers in Australia call our style and the Canadian style, the Canadian style of delivery, which is, so there is actually a label for it in the professional speaking world in the US and it's more subdued. It's a a bit more self-deprecating. It's a lot more casual. It's a little bit less, um, we call it rah-rah, but I don't know if you have a word for it. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, uh, it, it's, it's matching and meeting the, not only expectations, but the energy levels in the room. Sometimes I do go rah-rah when I, when I, when I need to GM up just after lunch or when they're a bit distracted, you know, but I don't stay there. And I think what she's referring to is that your style, maybe you were staying there, but you weren't maybe coming back to the needs and expectations of the room or the energy of that room where that sort of aligned or meshed. And so this is where meeting the audience where there are and white audience is so important because you need to adjust continually in real time to do that. And in fact, we tested this really very specifically uh, with our Zoom calls because um, a lot of people said Zoom fatigue. I had no evidence of Zoom fatigue during uh, lockdown. TEDx Melbourne ran events. We had a net promoter score of about 48 for people who know what that is. Quick backstory, it's between minus 100 and positive 100. Most people happy with about zero. You know, a good before your organization's considered good at about 20. We're about 48. So, yeah, and then go from 48 to 49 is exponentially harder. It's significantly harder. But within three months, measuring specific metrics, we're able to get our net promoter score to 98. By measuring things in Zoom that you can't in real life. And I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but we were able to really quantify the impact we were having at any given moment. And so I'm 100% convinced that the things that we measure in terms of our speaking performance are not only quantifiable, but are literally measurable in real time. And that's what we were doing. We were measuring the impact in real time, adjusting our delivery or format in real time, adjusting our content in real time and making sure that the audience was engaged. And we did a bit of a test. Our one-hour events, we said, we're going to hang around. And if you want to hang around after the event, we'll just stay and have a chat. 97% of the people stayed for at least two hours. And I think about 80% of them stayed for three hours. That is two hours past the the formal close of the event because of the engagement we had with the room. And so Zoom fatigue is really basically being not boring, not the fact that Zoom in and of itself is a difficult medium. Now, I can't take away that Zoom is new to people and we're not really used to it and it's easy to get distractions and you know it's hard to stare at a screen for an hour. I get all that stuff. 
But knowing all that stuff, what do you do about it is the question. And I don't think people were asking themselves that question. We went very specific there and were able to shift our net promoter score very significantly because we knew what to look Has that work allowed you to start to help people become better communicators on Zoom? Like, is this, is, is this an area of kind well, of focus for you now? We took all our live metrics, applied it to Zoom, and noticed they still work. But one of the things we did when we got into Zoom is there were other things that we didn't measure that we could add that you couldn't do in real life. For example, in a meeting, <laughs> let's say there's 50 people, the probability of you being within one meter of their face, arm's length from the camera, all 50 people is zero. It's almost impossible to do, if not impossible. And it's weird because you don't want to get in someone's face. <laughs> but there are 1,500 microfacial movements in the face that when in the combinations of irritations, we call emotion. And we can see that in real time, small curls of the mouth, slight curls in the eyebrows, micro tweaks, yeah. you know, in, in the, in the mouth that you can't see, in a in the face to face situation. And yeah. where we're using that statistical cues to determine the impact we're having. And so these sorts of things. You can measure really, really easily digitally that are really, really hard to do um, in a room. And so it gave us extra fidelity that proved even more to us that in, in life or on Zoom, we knew the things to measure in order to have the impact we needed to have. What were some of the insights from that? Like what made a really good talk like were there were there key indicators was it polish was it content like what are some of the things that you learned from that that you kind of maybe already knew and validated or yeah shocked you so um this is where the preparation needs to come into 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 place we rate each moment literally every minute if we can at an impact level between zero which is ho-hum to 10 out of 10, mind blown. And we need to know that we need to have at least an impact of eight or above on average from at least every two to three minutes. That's the baseline. If you're not doing that, you're not even being remotely entertaining. To go to nine and 10 is where the detail is. It's also harder to do, but it has much higher payoffs if you do it well. Professional speakers aim to have multiple impacts per minute. And so the preparation they would put into that is rule of thumb. For every minute on stage, 27 hours of preparation. So that's why Mm. they're so good at what they do. Now, the average speaker, the average Mm. executive, the average employee doesn't need to go remotely even near that, which is why I use the, 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 the eight out of 10 impacts every two to three minutes is probably a safe bet. It's a, it's a good rule of thumb. Okay. So knowing that's the case, mm-hmm. what do you need to do to create the impact? And therefore, what do you need to measure in order for that to happen? Now, some of it you can tell beforehand, like, oh, this fact's got to be really remarkable to this group. And some of it you have to do <laughs> when you're in the room. So you know, if they're all paying attention, that's great. 
But if they're not paying attention, what percentage of people are not paying attention? And then if, what are the thresholds you need to have? For instance, if they're not paying attention for, for 10 seconds, maybe that's okay. But if they're not paying attention for 10 minutes, that's a problem. Or is 10% of the room paying attention or 80% of the room paying attention? And so we would measure all these things. And so when we knew that they weren't paying attention, we had a choice. You change the format, you move on, or you say something different. And so creating small changes, the shifted variables, allowed us to not go from A to Z in terms of presentation, which is what most people do. They write down what they're going to say, they say it in order, and then they hope someone understands what they've said by the end. And that's where the whole myth around say what you said, say it again and repeat what you just said comes into play. Because the reason people do that is people aren't paying attention and you have to say it three times. Now, I would argue if you need to say one thing three times, you've failed as a communicator. And so that's a total myth. It's, it's, it's okay for, for teaching and lectures, but not for speeches or speaking in general. Can you imagine if I said to you, hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm John. Today, I'm going to talk about speaking. Today, I'm yeah. going to talk about speaking. Today, I'm going to talk. That's annoying. That's not helpful. Yeah. And so we've got to be mindful yeah. of that. So rather than having an A to Z, we have a, a decision tree where, you know, if people are paying attention, you do this. If they're not paying attention, they're doing that. Yeah. And then certain ratios will pick up and we'll flip the formats. And so it's, it's a combination of a number of small things over time that create the variety. And when this variety, there's interestingness. And so it's about knowing how to create that variety. And it gets a little bit complicated. It's hard. To, it's, it's probably better to do visually than explain. So I hope people are not lost. Yeah. But um, yeah. it then becomes just follow the bouncing ball. It actually becomes really, really easy. In fact, I'll give you an example. I got a migraine during one of our events. And someone on our team who wasn't part of the content development, wasn't part of the preparation team, and in fact, didn't know what we were even talking about, decided to come onto the call. And I said to him, read the run sheet, look at the impact levels, look at the activities we're going to do. When you've got that under your belt, let me know. My migraine was so bad that I had to leave halfway through the presentation. He completed the presentation and it did not not impact our, our net promoter score. In terms of what you've seen be successful elements of an oration, just anecdotally, because I'm I'm wondering, like, is the way you say it more important than the content? Like, content can be semi-interesting, but the delivery is amazing. Or does the content need to be just as interesting as the way it's delivered? Like, what are those elements, just anecdotally, and even if you've got data on that but just because sure. you've been in the game for so long like what are the elements that you would say is a receiver of yeah an oration that really so like wow that was amazing priorities and ratios i think 30 percent of your content is just facts you know well content is not sorry let me go back half a step content is important you need to have really good content and it needs to be of importance maybe 30 percent of the time you need those pieces of content the problem is that content in and of itself is not actionable or exciting. So everyone knows you should eat well, do lots of exercise. Almost no one does it. 
So, you know, content's important, but it's not the necessarily the only reason people come in the room. The other f- factors are maybe in your delivery, the way you deliver it, because you can be monotone and boring. You can be interesting yeah. and lively. I guess that's obvious when you kind of point it out, but yeah. you need to spend time on it. The other 30% is really around uh, your unique perspective on that content and, and, and your, 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 your wisdom and insight, if you want to call it that. Because if you want to transfer content, it's much easier to do it in an email or a web page. So as a communicator, we need to be really? have a, 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 del- a degree of insight and uniqueness that other people don't bring to the table. And that, that makes you unique yeah. as a presenter as well. So knowing that you need to sort of prioritize in those ratios, then you need to go, okay, have I overprepared on the content and given either too much detail or too technical or too dominant? And if that's the case, you've got to offset with case studies or stories or narratives. There's a rule of thumb we have is make a point, tell a story, or tell a story, make a point. And that's that's one of the reasons professional speakers do that. It, it, it gives that idea some life, something they can relate to, something that people can understand uh, and connect with. And there's scientific reasons for that, which we might go into yeah. in a second, but uh, believe me for the time being. Well, why, why, why does it appear, and this is a subjective comment that you know when you look at at the politicians particularly politicians here in australia because they are generally doing the most oration in terms of what we all see is a a community there doesn't seem to be an emphasis on strong oration like i I don't see or maybe it's how i value communication is different growing up in the u.s but i would say that there doesn't seem to be anyone that has that ability to Mm -hmm. deeply connect and I, I'm just wondering, in your view, is oration valued in Australia? Question. Like, do, do we value? I think, as a participant, as a receiver of the oration, I think when done well, is a very effective way to communicate. But I think speakers in general underrate the impact it can have. And there was a great interview yeah. with Julia Gillard on her own podcast. Well, she was being interviewed, actually. It was the 10th anniversary of her misogyny speech. And it was a really good sort of reflection by her on why it had the impact at the time and what the expectations of the the, the voting community was at the time and why it seemed to resonate at the time. And it was it's a really nice reflection on the importance of, of, of critical speeches like that. And it's it's worth going to dig up that podcast as well, there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that is important. And I think that, you know, you and I've talked offline about tall poppy yeah. and, and maybe can you, can you give our audience, cause most of our audience is Australian, but there's a large percentage of our audience that's in the U S and the UK and kind of scattered across the world. But could you give our, our audience a flavor on your opinion as to how tall poppy has influenced how we communicate here in Australia? I, I think it's very much a colonial thing in general. One of the theories, and I can't remember which professor came up with this theory, was that during the convict era of Australia, there were many more convicts than guards. So when someone misbehaved back then, that convict was pulled out, treated extra nice, given special provision, 
well looked after and uh, a bit like the teacher's pet, like we have at school today, the other content mm -hmm. grew to mm -hmm. resent that person. And then when they were introduced back hey. into the, into the group, you know, that they, they were picked on for that. And so I think sticking your neck out mm -hmm. and, um, and being distinctive from a cultural point of view, uh, was impacted very much by those early colonial day convict backgrounds. So for the people who are not born in Australia, that's one of the theories why what we call the tall poppy syndrome exists. But I think it's still very much um, a foundation of uh, the British stipar polit. Be you know, be quite conservative. Yeah, you know, don't 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 just you know disrupt the crowd type thing. I think there's some origins in there as well. That kind of also become the overlay. When you think about yeah, yeah. the US, its yeah. very origin was based on the foundations of independence and free speech and the opportunity to to do what wow. you like as you like and not be under the, oppre the oppression of the power of the time, which was the king of England. So yeah. that cultural overlay, I think, means that in the US, that desire yeah. to stand out, to be distinctive, to have your voice, to be recognized, and individualism in particular is part of that cultural narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you have two almost yeah. extreme ends of uh, perception come together, that's where the, the jarring potentially happens. So I think that from a cultural point of Australia uh, and, and US, that's where the biggest uh, impact or interface happens. And I think that's one of the reasons why Australians and New Zealanders and South Africans and Canadians who have got a little bit more of a softer positioning in terms of the nature of their cultures get on so well because they aren't sort of that sort of adversarial type yeah. uh, position. And yeah, you know, these are all theories, but I think they make a lot of sense when you reflect on them in that way. Yeah, I agree. And I think that uh, having kind of grown up in the US and been now in Australia for a while, I really try to leverage both positions. You know, I think in Australia, you create a lot of impact first through your kind of actions and how you operate. And then you oh, amplify yeah. the message almost. Whereas in, in the US, you can come out of the gate screaming and then figure out how to actually build the, 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 the system totally. behind it. And I think there's uh, learnings in both and when to leverage either or and and uh and how to to be skillful in that and i think that one of the benefits for me was i immediately started selling in australia so i had to learn how to tone down and i remember when i got my first job in australia the recruiter told me he's like dude you're gonna have to tone down the yank it's like you're gonna really have to he said it to i'll never forget it right like and i was like what do you mean um but let, let's move uh, closer to, to, to you now, John. So you obviously help people communicate. Like, why do most of your clients come to you? Like, what are they trying to do? Common scenarios. Um, and then there are a couple of that are, that are rather interesting in that they, people just genuinely interested in be, becoming better and more effective as communicators. That does happen. But I think, you know, the typical yep. scenarios are... Um, Someone's got an important presentation or meeting, usually a presentation to the board or a key announcement within their organization, and they want to make sure that they're hitting the mark and they're connecting, resonating with the people in the room. Yeah. That's the most common scenario. 
The next most common scenario is, okay, we want to make sure that we're internally efficient and therefore our communication needs to be internally effective. And so the ability to communicate well that resonates and has meaning for the people you're listening to is a learned skill over and above command and control and ordering people around. And I think Australia in particular as a nation is moving from command and control as a, as a, as a leadership style into more consultative slash coaching style. And that does require a lot more EQ, empathy, you know, building rapport. Yeah. And so my work is actually increasing because of that. You know, I think people are recognizing that we're human mm. beings at the end of the day. And, and, and I think um, uh, COVID amplified that. You know, people aren't going to take people's crap anymore. They're going to pick a job that they like, they enjoy, that's rewarding, that gives them, that nourishes them financially and personally. And I think leaders are recognizing they need to adapt from that point of view as well. And you and I touched on, on, on this before, like, you know, businesses also have communication. I mean, some would call it branding. It's, it's the perception that we all, you know, outside of the organization, organization or even within the organization kind of interpret. Have you bled into that area? Like, has that area kind of naturally kind of moved? Okay, well, like here, I'm a CEO and I, or, you know, a, a C-suite person and I'm looking to kind of become a better communicator. But part of how I'm viewed is I am viewed as the organization as well. And, and you know, like, yeah. how does that then align with the messaging of the organization? Like, it almost seems, particularly in a business context, that there might be an integration yeah. of the two, About right? Three years ago, the Edelman Trust Barometer picked up and still continues this line of thinking that CEOs, particularly in Australia, but just globally, need to make statements yeah. outside the, the, the traditional domains that they have in the past. They need to stand for and represent the people that they sell to just as much as peddle the product and services they provide. And a classic example was um, I saw an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, um, front page, uh, lambasting Nike for, for doing the Colin Copernic take a knee uh, campaign uh, and saying uh, that this will be yeah. the end of mm -hmm. uh, Nike, like they shouldn't be getting into politics, they shouldn't be, you know, uh, you know, talking about things that are not relevant to them, da-da-da. And in that same year, Nike also did uh, oversized clothing, people for more shapely people, shall we say. And um, they did one other campaign. Oh, yeah, they honed in on their Nike run, which is more about building the community as opposed to selling shoes. And there was another article by the same newspaper about Nike saying it was the most successful year in Nike's history because they did these things. So it was literally a 180 yeah. on the original article they'd written in December, in January yeah. because they'd picked these lines. Yeah. And to your point, I think yep. we are, we're lacking leadership globally at all levels. I don't care if it's local or national sure. or even global. And so the leader who stands up, who represents the people, believes in the people, understands the people and becomes arguably part of the narrative of the people is actually much more likely to build the mm. trust and poor relationship and engagement as a human being. And because of that, 
the brand that they have underneath them carries that brand with them. You can't separate them anymore. And I think that's a big part of yeah. it. And it's funny because yeah. <laughs> coming back to that Wall Street article, um, uh, Trump was calling in the first article calling Nike un-American. And I, I thought that was also rather interesting. Yeah, I remember the that. The fact that a president is making a comment about a CEO <laughs> of a shoe brand because of what they believe in is 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 the level of conversation that, that leaders need to be engaged with. Well, excellent conversation, John. Thank you so much for your time. One question, though, before we do go is I'm interested in kind of becoming a better communicator. And other than obviously coming to you, John, which you should do if you are interested in becoming a better communicator, what are some of the steps I could take to just start to to, yeah. to, to move towards There's a handful that. of things that are absolutely critical. I yeah. think the, the first one is have a be very clear about what you need to say. And the way I summarize that is, can you summarize your message in a single compelling sentence? And the reason it needs to be single is it forces clarity. And if it's clear in your head, it can be clear in your audience. If it's not clear in your head, the audience hasn't got a chance. The clarity there is really important. Compelling because it needs to be meaningful to the person you're listening to. Now, our long-term memory, which is a hippocampus, and our amygdala, our emotional center, are literally physically connected in our brain. So when you're stimulating someone's emotional centers or creating meaning for them, you're literally stimulating their long-term memory. Whereas our short-term memory, the neocortex, the front of our brain, doesn't connect with those two parts of the brain, which means the only time short-term memory is going or the logic part of your brain connects to the long-term part of your brain is during sleep, which is a good argument for sleep, by the way. So, you know, if you create a compelling statement, you're directly connecting with the long-term memory and not relying on their short-term memory. And then, you know, so that's the first thing, single compelling sense. The second thing is meet your audience where they're at. That's content complexity. That is language. That is time that is energy level, like it's much easier to have a conversation with me in the morning than it is in the evening, just because of my energy level. So be cognizant of your audience and manage your message and your delivery in real time, ideally, with to meet their needs. Because it's not about your content. If it's about your content, send it in an email. You know, Connect with that person, create meaningful engagement, help them relate to it, then becomes the critical factor. So audience analysis then becomes a critical piece. And then as much as you can, prepare. Yeah, practice and pre prepare. And look, some if that's only five minutes, that's fine. But five minutes is better than not, than make another. Because you know what? If you do random, you're in trouble because the law of averages says one day that will fall over. And also hope is not a strategy. So, you know, I think we need to be at least mindful and respectful for the people we're speaking to by being prepared in the first place. Hope is not a strategy. I love that one, John. Anyways, that uh, that's going to wrap us up. Where can our audience uh, learn so more about you, John? Uh, brightstar.net.au is my website. But uh, if you want to connect and engage, send me LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to take LinkedIn. One request, though, because I, I do get a lot of requests because of TEDx Melbourne, is just put in the little request. You know, I heard you on the Ultra Habits podcast, so I know the context of why we're connecting. Otherwise... Um, I tend to ignore the ones that don't have any comments because I, I I tend to get someone who's either trying to sell to me or someone trying to pitch a, a TEDx talk, yeah. and I, I I just haven't got 
the bandwidth to to manage all those in 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 ultra in uh, in LinkedIn. Yeah, for sure, and particularly because you're a shy introvert, you're not you don't have an appetite yeah. for yeah. unnecessary. Yeah, more sensitive steps. Yeah, with you, mate. Well, thank you so much for your your time, John. As always, mate, right. it was a great Thanks talk to you, man. Great to chat again. See you again. Hey folks, thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have, I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.com. Co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.